0: Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, the U.S. unveiled its signature economic initiative, Prosper Africa, which promises to double two-way trade between the United States and Africa. Will it work? Liberian President George Weah has faced major protests in early June over allegations of corruption and economic mismanagement. Is this a harbinger of things to come? Plus, we discussed the role of women in African politics. What are the opportunities, challenges, and policy options to level the playing field and boost the number of women in politics? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. In mid-June, the U.S. government unveiled its signature economic initiative, Prosper Africa.
1: The plan is to bring together African and American private sectors to promote trade and investment.
0: There was a lot of commerce and USAID and other USG speeches there. But essentially the idea is, can we establish a one-stop shop to facilitate deals and modernize and coordinate the resources of the U.S. agencies? The idea is to increase two-way trade between Africa and the U.S., The question is, what is the problem that Prosper Africa is trying to solve, and is it the right approach? So joining me today to discuss this question and other topics is Reva Levinson, president and CEO of KRL International and author of Choosing the Hero, My Improbable Journey and the Rise of Africa's First Woman President, Mwende Munzini, Kenya's ambassadorial designate to South Korea, and Esther Taiwa, the executive director of the Gender Center for Empowering Development based in Accra, Ghana. So Riva, you were there, right? You were in Maputo. Uh, you wrote a piece that I thought was incredibly balanced. Can you kind of tell us, you know, what was it like to be there in Maputo? What is the good, the bad, the ugly of Prosper Africa?
2: So Maputo for me was an eye-opener because I had never been there. And if you read my piece in The Hill, I was so struck by the development in Maputo. And then I found out it was all Chinese made. It was the bridge, the roads, the hotels, the conference center where Prosper Africa was unveiled. So for me, I thought it was the perfect visual of what's happening on the continent when we're leaving it alone. Mm. And as far as being there, look, I give everybody an A for effort. They had their act together. They put their website live. They had 15 agencies coming in to talk about what they wanted to do to support U.S. businesses. And I think there is real passion and determination and that they're doing the best they can in the political environment that they find themselves in, which is why I said Prosper Africa for me is a policy under construction. And I said to you, I think if we build it, it will become more than it is.
0: Yeah, I, I actually take all of that on board. I do believe this administration is quite serious about this issue. This is a positive step. Uh, but one of the things that I haven't had a strong read on yet, looking at the African press, is how do Africans think about this? And Wendy, I wonder if you had any reactions to the announcements, to what Riva's saying? Is this good news for countries like Kenya? Is it your sense? Do you know if African governments and the African private sectors have been consulted in the construction of this policy?
3: I'll agree with both you and her. And I read your piece as well, that the Prosper Africa initiative is positive. Now, it's not, you know, it's not necessarily an initiative that's really, really unique conceptually. I mean, there's been for, there's been a GOA, there have been so many different programs That have benefited millions of Africans and deepened the continent's relationship with the U.S. But in my view, to make it effective, it needs to be a roadmap that is hinged not on the limited understanding of Africa from the American perspective, but Africa's needs. I don't think that it's an accident that the U.S. exports into the U.S. into Africa have declined by what, a whopping 32% in
2: the past five years?
0: No, that makes absolute sense. I think that the, and I know Reva agrees with this, is this is going to be a work in progress. Absolutely. Right now, this is essentially a government coordination mechanism. And when I said earlier, what problem are they trying to solve? They're trying to solve for that that multinational companies that are interested in investing in Africa find it really difficult to work through our system. You know, you're on this, as I said in the piece, it's a scavenger hunt. You go door to door knocking and you're trying to collect all of the the Easter eggs that the US government offers to help American business. But we have to do more. And I'm, you know, committed to working with like-minded individuals in the legislative and executive branch to help think through with with friends like Riva and colleagues who are really want to make sure this works is how do we address, as you said, um, Mwende, like how do we address what Africans need? How do we communicate better to the American private sector what the U.S. strategic comparative advantage is? It's not necessarily going to be building roads, but there's a lot of things that we do really well services, financing, banking, entertainment, agro-processing. And I'd like to see this program do a little more signaling to the American private sector. So they say, well, we do services and Africa is an opportunity. So the backend stuff is phenomenal. Great. We've been waiting for this, but we got to do much more work on the front end. And I really hope that the next stage is talking to Africans Um, about what they need and finding, you know, that Venn diagram of what we can do and what Africans need and then moving forward. Esther, what do you think?
1: For me, I mean, I just want to say, um, touch on what she just said about African needs. I think that is where there's a gap. And with your policy, I see that you're trying to fill the gap that the Chinese are already trying to fill up. What African needs, I mean, we need roads, we need buildings, we need schools, we need everything. Yes, we need democracy, but that is not what the African average person thinks about on a daily basis. The African person is not thinking about human rights issues, is not thinking about the things that the U.S. would has been championing over the years. We don't have the infrastructure, we don't have the roads, but the Chinese are kind of open, you know, they don't really have criteria as to what their money is supposed to be used for.
0: So this is my point. I I think Riva has some thoughts on this too, is that there are some things that China does and can do well and can do not well, right? And I think... In the case of Maputo, I don't know those specifics, but it tends to be there's a lot of variation in which the Chinese companies operate. So there's a variety of it. But I think you know, a lot of this is framed as competition with China. I think the smarter play is what are the things that we can bring to the table? What are the things that China can bring to the table, but in ways in which we know it benefits Africans and doesn't, you know, add to corruption, etc. That's
2: a the great point. And one of the points I made in my article was I was glad that John Bolton's fiery rhetoric about great power competition disappeared disappeared. yes it it didn't even disappear It, it evaporated yeah and so you had U.S. leaders coming in and talking about claiming the space based upon what they can deliver what their business community can deliver what U.S. can do better than others in terms of quality and and systems and infrastructure so I thought that was good. And I think, uh, Wendy, you gave me a compliment. I want to thank you for that in terms of the uh, the advocacy that I've been doing for Africa. But I almost feel, and I said this to Judd, that if we don't champion this, then who will? Yeah. And uh, also recognizing that every major initiative, you know, from AGOA to PEPFAR to Electrify Africa to the BUILD Act was... A coalition that ended up putting together a legislative authorization and an administrative package and so I believe that um, Africa is one of those few spaces in this highly toxic political climate we're operating in in Washington where people seem to be willing to work together and not to score points and so one of the um, the challenges I put to Judd in his uh, day job (laughs) was what what are the essential components that this type of program from a U.S. perspective in terms of U.S. base capabilities can put on the table and can add budget to it to actually measurably increase trade and investment and there are two things that I'm thinking about and I'm wondering if I could put those on the table. Yes. One was that I've noticed that the um, EU has uh, all of these different free trade agreements that they're working on and also with the UK exiting Brexit, it is very concerned about its own position vis-a-vis Africa and what I see the EU and the UK doing is putting people and expertise on the ground in the theater to help and to be present. I was told that there's like 715 new people from the United Kingdom being deployed to Africa. Wow. So I'm wondering how many foreign commercial sales officers do we have on the continent? That was my one point. And then my second point is harnessing the entrepreneurship that exists on the continent and the youth energy and how to support that in a way that, you know, people individual entrepreneurs are supporting it. And so look at the, maybe the three big things that we can do, package it, put a piece of money together. I think we could get it through Congress, even in the 2021 budget.
0: Turning to Liberia, I want to discuss the Way administration and the protests that we saw on June 7th. Anger and frustration on the streets of Monrovia as thousands massed on Capitol Hill to denounce rising prices in the country, protesters say life in Liberia has become increasingly difficult. Riva, you have a very long history on Liberia, uh, working with President, former President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who is the subject of your book, Choosing a Hero. Um, just maybe a quick report card on the way administration. What did he represent? You know, what is the sense or your sense of whether he's delivered on his promises?
2: So I warned you that um, as I worked with President Sirleaf, I don't want to become politically involved in the conversation. Do you want me to redo the question? No, no, okay. not at all. I'm just going to let you know that I want to have a, a little bit yeah. of a retrospective uh, perspective. I think that what he represented was the first presidential democratic transition of power in 75 years, and a euphoria that a opposition candidate and somebody who's youthful and energetic could assume the presidency. And I think we were all hopeful. I mean, the continent was hopeful. President akufoato almost um, brought him in and, and supported him, was there throughout the whole inauguration, et cetera. But um, I think that as far as delivery, um, you know, the delivery has been uh, challenging, and it's been challenging because it's a opposition party that never had the responsibility of governance. So within the CDC, which is their party, there are people, there are no people who, for the past two decades, have even participated in government. So that's a huge issue. The other issue is um, the CDC um, has adopted um, and, winner-take-all aspect of political participation. So they haven't been opened Mm -hmm. to some of the ideas and, um, and support and experience of the other political parties. And they came up against a difficult economic situation. And I think everybody believes, and I think President Weah himself would say, that there needs to be a bit of a rethink or a reboot in terms of some of the policies that have been put in place to encourage economic growth.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really fair and candid reaction. I mean, 18 months is not a long time, but the honeymoon is certainly over. And I think that uh, people going to the streets on June 7th, thousands of them uh, was an indication that people are uh, angry about some of the corruption allegations, feeling like there's economic decline. And I think one of the things that I think President Weah may be underestimating or, I mean, I don't know, maybe he doesn't care, but the opposition is fairly organized. They've been doing this for a very long time. And so I think we are at the precipice of more of these kinds of, of um, whether it's opposition-led or organic protests to say that we're not going in the direction that the people of Liberia want voted for. Uh, Esther, you've been to Liberia a bunch, right? You've, you were observing this election. So maybe you have some thoughts on this issue.
1: The Liberian situation, for me, I think it's a country that was yearning for a change um, because they saw a lot of nepotism, a lot of corruption under the government, and they felt and a lot of underdevelopment. They wanted to see different things, and they felt, okay, we have Ria, who is a celebrity, sort of, like, and all that. But the the things that they were hoping to get, I mean, it's one thing being a celebrity and it's one thing being in government and understanding the business of government. The Liberian people were so eager. And the, for the very first time, they have a native and not a Congo. Mm-hmm. So they were excited about what the fact.
0: What does a Congo mean? Just to um, so make sure so, people know.
1: Okay, so the Congos are the, the people who were brought from America.
0: America-Liberians exactly. is another America way, right? America-Liberians. Yeah.
1: So they call them the Congos. And Ria is like a native. But they didn't really understand what they were getting themselves into the protest that is happening is not led by the opposition because as of now the position is not even in the good books of any liberian especially with the missing one million dollars and the arrest of robert salve johnson so the protests are ordinary people not the opposition there's the ordinary people who were angry civil society organizations were involved in everything and there was an internet shutdown on that day because they thought it wouldn't going to be that big but because it was was led by ordinary people where civil society organizations were so interested and everybody was involved. The turnouts happened to be so huge.
0: So do you think we're going to
1: see more? Of course, because the issues, the president's statement, he says he's ready to talk. He's ready to listen. They, they should come for them to have a seat and discuss the issues and see the way forward. But the point is that nobody is sure of what is going to happen because the president also has a lot of issues within his government, whether it's the accusation of him and the vice president not being good terms and a few quite a number of the... Um, people around him.
2: I completely respect your perspective. I probably don't agree with it all. But <laughs> as but as Judd knows, I worked for Madam yeah. President for about 20, um, 23 years. Okay. My view of the protest is um, a bit... Uh, different. And again, it's only because we talk to different people. But my view of the protest was that um, people were trying to score political points. I mean, there was a view of the opposition, there were radio hosts, there was uh, people who came in from the US, believing that he had failed so badly that this type of momentum would collapse his presidency, which of course it couldn't, because he is a duly elected Sovereign with international support. I think the um, the protests fizzled. Mm. I think they moved. They started way too early, and their momentum was in their message and not in the street. And I think, unfortunately, the government has looked at it as scoring political points mm. and not listening to the true deep concerns of the country.
0: So I want to be able to move to the the reason why I wanted to bring you guys here today, which is that I am really excited to talk about the role of women. The three of you are either in politics, working with with uh, young politicians, female politicians, uh, on both the domestic and the international side. And I, I often get people asking me, like, well, why, why are you doing a, a topic uh, uh, for the podcast? And it's usually because I meet really interesting people. And uh, Esther and I observed the election in Nigeria together in Adamawa State. Yeah. And I was like, when you come to the DC, we're gonna do an episode together. And I know exactly some great people that can join us, like Riva and Mwende. So Esther, very briefly, like an elevator brief, <laughs> like what does your organization do?
1: Okay, so Gender Center for Empowering Development, said, it's a gender focused organization. We look at women in governance, women in um, politics, we work around this area, peace and, uh, peace and security, how women can be involved in peace building and everything. Mwende,
0: uh, you're not just working with organizations, you know, perhaps, perhaps working with organizations like Esther's. You're in politics. You ran for parliament in 2017, and now you're President Kenyatta's uh, ambassador designate for South Korea. So it'd be really wonderful to hear a little about your experiences, why you entered politics, and, and, and how do you navigate, as a woman, uh, Kenyan politics?
3: First of all, let, let's just start off with the, the the fact that you know the terrain is really really rough globally for women in politics. I mean, the Republican Party is having its own challenges. There's more females in the uh, you know Democratic Party than are Republicans. It, it, it's a it's a rough could be hostile place. In Africa, you know, where women face more cultural and financial and security challenges, it makes it you know. Extraordinarily difficult. Now, I, as you mentioned, was um, was a candidate and I was vying for a member of parliament seat in my region, my area's uh, Kitui uh, County, my constituency. is a relatively small constituency, and I will tell you that, though it's not unique to me, generally speaking, you will be ostracised based on any little difference that you have, whether it's racial, whether it's ethnic, whether it's marital. I mean, are you single? Do you have children out of wedlock? Are you married? Are you married to somebody from your community or outside? What is your religious background? And um, you know, the challenges are very many, but I'm I'm really, really proud to say that you know, if there's any continent on which there's been really, really, really serious attempts to uh, mainstream women to politics, Africa is one of them. In Kenya and, you know, again, you know, my experience this is my first time. I've I've been in the background politically, but this was my first time vying. And I happened to be the first female who had vied for such a political seat in my area. There were a lot of really positive things that came from it. Um you know, as an individual you know, I I I experienced a lot that I would never otherwise have uh I stepped out of my comfort zone. I held the mantle for very many women younger and my peers who now will have the courage to stand alongside me. I follow in the footsteps of very many strong female candidates in this country, particularly from my ethnic group. Um, My governor is a female. In fact, she was the first presidential uh, candidate that was female in this entire country. So I follow in the footsteps of very, very many strong women. So I you know, I wouldn't take anything back. Yes, I, I did lose the position. Um, I support the person who 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 won the seat. I um I would I, 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 I encourage as many women as can buy to these positions to do so. We know that women are generally less likely to indulge in violence, they're less likely to indulge in corruption than their male counterparts, and they're more vested really in creating more tangible, long lasting impacts. So I think Africa is, is leading, in fact the world, when it comes to women in positions of leadership.
0: I really like the story that you're telling. And one of the things about this podcast is we do want to, you know, push against conventional wisdom. And so, you know, I am aware of governments like Ethiopia, Rwanda, South Africa, and, and the Seychelles, which I didn't realize until we recorded this, that have cabinet parity. Uh, but I spent a lot of time in Nigeria. So hearing the Kenya story is really encouraging one Riva, you work with candidates, not only Ellen Johnson Surley, but you work with Joyce Banda. Um, what about uh, what Wendy said resonated with you? What do you think are some of the challenges uh, that you when you're working with female candidates in Africa that you try to tackle.
2: But maybe I'll 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 just tell you a couple things from my um, observations working with um you know Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and Joyce Banda and other women political leaders. I mean women are um, political outsiders and they threaten the status quo and that's um a deep threat and that's why Mwende when you talk about people coming at you very misogynistically about um, women and, and what they wear and who they say and where who they married, et cetera. I mean, it, it's not only the threat of the woman. It's the threat of the woman coming in as a political outsider and changing inherently corrupt systems and male-dominated cartels. And one of the conversations I was having today with uh, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who I still Work with and have the privilege of still, you know, helping on communications is um, in addition to these issues of um, gender parity. Um, she came to me and she said that she feels that the weakness of institutions, of democratic institutions, are one of the greatest impediments to um, to women participation, and in that if we if we had Um, or um, institutions, and we invested in them, and they were strong on their own and not whimsical by the political leaders. It would be the women and the youth and other political outsiders who would benefit the most. I salute you, by the way, um, Wendy, because it is tough political going in campaigns in Africa as a woman. And losing sucks, right? (laughs) But every, like, my best experience <laughs> in life, I yes, mean, the things I that I have learned the most of is, you know, is picking yourself up and, like, taking the goodness away mm-hmm. and just feeling stronger mm-hmm. and being there for, um and, and being there for um, other people. And if you read my memoir, which, I didn't showcase, but Judd did. It's all about making really bad decisions. And yeah. but just continuing to know that you're here for some reason and 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 you're gonna do things that, that make an impact. So I salute you, Mwende, and Esther, I salute you for what you guys Thank are you. doing. And I'm I'm just here to help.
0: When Esther and I were in uh, Adamawa State, uh, one of the polling units that we went to it was majority women, yeah, young women, and man, the the head of it, she was a boss. I mean, yeah. <laughs> she cool, calm, collected, and ran that that PU, that polling unit, with with such expertise. And I was like, the election in and of itself was problematic, but if you if that PU, if that polling unit was a country, like I have all the optimism in the world for Nigeria because these women, and particularly the head of it, was fantastic.
1: I know he couldn't stop taking pictures with her. He kept saying, no, we need we, to do we a interviewed video. Yeah, We interviewed her. I want to do an interview. Yeah, I was telling Jade, I mean, you hear women campaigning, some women are saying, vote for me, I'm your sister, you know, I'm your mother. And these things, sometimes, what kind of message are they selling? So they don't have all these things. And there's also that kind of struggle between the young women and the older women. So within the political space, you have the old women in the circle, where the young women are missing in the in the in the rings. There's less mentoring. There's less kind of teaching them. Be part of the process. So you see, we have a lot of mentors, and uh, we are talking about other things except being politically active. And so you have young generation who feels they are not they are not fit to enter. It's only the older one. And even when there's government wants to have an appointment, make an appointment, and it's women folks, you hardly do see governments appointing younger women into such positions. So that's also a very big problem. So it doesn't encourage the young ones. Most women also go into politics very late. A lot of them don't even have party cards. They are not party members. They don't pay dues. How do you join the process, which is very tough? We did the research in Ghana, and most of the students said, oh, the politicians, they only want us to for vote for them on campuses. After that, they don't think about us again. So you could see that within the political system, the entry point for women is difficult because in schools it's easy because you are in school and all that after school where you are in the world it becomes difficult for you to come back into the terrain of trying to do this because of course we have other so many things we want we want to have a baby we want to be married and all that kind of thing where the men are just free to straight up enter how do we encourage women right from university who are so active to be part of the process and not be left out so for us we felt it's something that we need to we need to do so like we have a program called the young women's political leadership school we don't only do it in Ghana, we do it in Nigeria, Liberia, the Gambia. And the question is, how can we build these young women to be politically active, so is not there, activists?
0: Is there a role for the, the U.S. in some of these efforts? I mean, I, I, maybe I'll start with Mwende first. Mwende, is there, in your experience, are there, is there a way that the U.S. Uh, and, and other friends of Africa can be helpful in in, in empowerment issues?
3: Absolutely, think And thanks for the question. Well, first of all, let me start off from the point that it's important to recognize that politics is not easy, easy across the board, even for men. You know, they, they may be, uh, more present in it, but in most countries, certainly in African countries and in Kenya, politicians are associated with corruption, with slime. Nobody, nobody understands that there are Sensible, decent, patriotic human beings who sacrifice, who want to be the change that, you know, they they want to be part of the change they want to see, that sacrifice a lot financially, uh, relationship-wise, time with their families to be part of this driving force that will, uh, you know, help create a better future for their children and, and future generations. In um, as far as women, you know, we have had so many efforts. Uh, long-standing efforts, particularly from the West, uh, that help focus on this gender, uh, disparity that exists. And you know, you know, one must question their effectiveness, but overall, overall, and, and, and I may be saying things that are obvious, that may seem obvious, but one is to build the capacity of these female candidates. You know, there's so many programs out there. You know, Esther was right. You know, people come in and they don't know how to brand themselves. You think that because you're a female, if you speak to your fellow female as a mother, it makes you more attractive. That is not necessarily so. So we need to have programs that develop our skills so that we can compete with our male counterparts on a more level playing ground. And then, you know, one of the challenges, the largest challenges certainly, has to do with funding. You know, so in as far as the U.S. is concerned, I think that this administration needs to focus on supporting females who share the values that are aligned with the mutual interests that they're, you know, they, that the U.S. has with those individual, uh, candidates. You know, what, what, what are their views on democratic freedom? What are their views on corruption free society, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? But most, uh, maybe not most importantly, but equally importantly in my final point is that in my experience, three quarters of these initiatives, and I had NGOs coming at me left, right, and center towards the end of my campaign. I, and I'm talking, uh, three weeks before elections, offering some funding here for some programs, some workshops. Nobody three weeks to elections has time to go and participate in a workshop. So what this administration should do if it, if it, um, wishes to, and clearly there's the intention to, is to offer female candidates concise, structured programs that are not just NGO-led, but are government-driven, that have the financial capacity, that respond to the immediate needs of the female aspirants, and that are timely, practical, and implementable. Don't come at me when I'm supposed to be in the field to be in a workshop Singing Kubaya with uh, yeah. with a bunch of other women, and I'm preaching to the choir.
0: I know that's a those are great suggestions and a perfect segue because you know Ivanka Trump has been talking about being a better advocate for women in politics. So maybe Riva, you could tell us a little bit about about the Ivanka Trump sort of initiative, as much as you know, and then and maybe uh, add on to some of the points that Mwende made.
2: With regard to Ivanka Trump, um, Ivanka Trump has set up this two initiatives, $50 million seems to be the Africa funding cap, to support women entrepreneurship and support women in ICT. And I followed her across the continent. She was in Ethiopia and Cote d'Ivoire. And She, to her credit, has done some really good things because she's been able to get an interagency consensus. She's actually been able to take her initiative support for the empowerment of women and get congressional legislation. So she's done some really good things. But in my article, because I always push the boundaries just like Judd does, (laughs) is that, um, you know, I said, hey, like, get out of your safe zone because women, um, they don't. They have no safe zones in Africa. I mean, you're not just an entrepreneur. You're a woman. You're a politician. You're a civic leader. And I asked her why she was sipping tea or coffee in Ethiopia and didn't say anything about the Ethiopian rising led by two-thirds professional women in Sudan, and that if she was going to stand for women entrepreneurs and women ICT leaders, she needed to stand with the women political leaders of Africa. So I think she's doing a good job, but she's got to get out of her safe zone, because we all know for women in Africa, there is no safe space. It's got to be more
0: comprehensive, right? More comprehensive. You can't pick or choose. Thank you so much, Esther. Thank you, Mwende. Thank you, Reva. Uh, There's so much more to hear talk about, but we're going to have to end it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at CSIS.org slash Africa. Thanks.